0: Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The
1: guard shut the
2: iron door
0: behind me. Howdy folks, howdy, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. Did you miss me? Well, I've been kind of busy. I had a couple little minor maintenance things I had to take care of here around the old farm. And a uh, weird thing. had the uh, I've got a stock tank you know, a watering tank for the donkeys. And uh, Jackson and I are pulling out of the the house and we have to drive through the pasture. That's our driveway. And uh, I look to my left over to the horse tank and it's a geyser. Something has broken. Pipes broken, something. It's just spewing. And I had been hearing that pump running a little too frequently lately. It just seemed like I, You can when the well pump kicks on, you can sort of feel a vibration in your feet for hundreds of yards. And uh, I just, I had this sense the day before that, that I got a leak somewhere. There is a leak somewhere that's making that pump kick on too often, which is, you know, it's capable of doing that, but you're wasting a lot of water and you're pulling your well down and you're overtaxing the relays and the control box and all that kind of stuff. So you don't want the thing running all the time. I just had a feeling it was leaking. There it was. A geyser. Probably been running all night long. Like you open a faucet on the side of the house and just let it rip for a couple of days. So Jackson and I, um, we, we went ahead on to town and got us a hearty sausage, egg, and cheese biscuit. I'm like, ah, it's probably been running all night. It ain't going to burn up before we get back. Let's go get our biscuit, and then we'll come back and fix it. So we did that little job. He's out there barefoot. Um, I could not get to the problem. Uh, basically, there's a, a faucet that comes up out of the ground, and then there's a hose that goes from the faucet up to the float valve on the tank. And then you got about a 200-gallon tank there. And... Uh, Well, I couldn't get to it. We, in other words, we got to move the tank. We got to drain the tank, but I can't get to the drain because it's wedged up against a fence post. So I got Jackson there with a bucket, and he's just scooping out the water. And we've got a siphon hose running, and got to drain this tank because you ain't gonna lift 200 gallons of water. So, uh, and it's full of old algae and stuff. I'm surprised there aren't fish in it, you know. I've always expected that one day I'm going to look in that tank and see little fish swimming around, you know. Anyway, it was cool to see Jackson out there in the hot sun, barefoot, standing in mud and ankle-deep water with a bucket scooping out a horse tank. I think that was character building, you know. Anyway... Drained it out, and it turns out the hose where it screwed onto the faucet had just rotted away, you know, rusted away and was broken. So, get a new hose, uh, connect it up to the, uh, to the uh, float valve at the top, which maintains the water level every time they, you know, evaporation or they drink it down, you know, it kicks on, kind of like your toilet. Kind of like the tank on your toilet. You know, It's it fills itself as needed. So anyway, get it all hooked up. And I'm like, okay, turn the water on. It is spewing water everywhere. Not only had it broken off at the faucet, the tank valve was completely shot. It just dissolved away. It's a metal... Anyway, uh, I won't bore you with the details, but... It was uh, back to the feed and seed to buy a new tank valve for twenty bucks and put it in, and everything's like not a drop of water. It's just perfect. Everything's nice. I also had to cut down two small cedar trees, which had grown up and were blocking access to it. Anyway, been doing stuff like that, putting up hay, uh, having my little picking, and uh, just all sorts of weird stuff going on. Anyway, so that's a little update. I also got my sweet potato harvest in, and I'm done with that. I think the garden is finito for this year. And I did get a couple of mushrooms for you mycologists out there, or mycophiles. I got a couple of shiitakes off the first flush from the one log that I initiated. So if you know what I'm even talking about, you'll understand. And I've got about uh, ten more logs that I'm about to initiate, because the temperatures are getting perfect. It was 59 this morning when I got up. So uh, enjoy this beautiful fall weather. It's just beautiful. And the flowers and the goldenrod is just, it's just a magnificent time of year. Anyway, okay, so let's get to the the point of this podcast. I've been threatening, I mean, I've been telling you that uh, I did a podcast with with um, I was a guest on another podcast called the Chatty Light Podcast. And uh, you can go over there and scope out all their other podcasts. I think this is, I don't know, episode 12 or something like that. And uh, it was about two years ago that I, I ran into Colton Mims at Pat's place at one of my Thursday outside jam sessions I was doing. He's hanging around out there. And we were talking and I mentioned my podcast, you know, always self-promoting. And he's like, oh, really? You do a podcast? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I got it. I'm like up to like 86 episodes. This was a while ago. And he's like, me and uh, Alex are thinking about starting a podcast. You know, we're going to do this. And he started talking. And so, you know, I was kind of filling him in on like the basics of how you how you do it and and how I did mine. And you know, I'm talking about Podbean and Apple podcast and all this kind of stuff. And we had this conversation. Well, every month or so I'd run into him at Pat's place. And go say, hey, hey, did you start your podcast yet? Well, we're, we're still working on, it. we're working on, it. we're working on. It. And this went on for a year or more, two years, maybe. Hey, Cole, what's up with the podcast? You guys, are you, are you still doing it? Okay. So they did it. And, uh, It's a really cool idea, and it's an idea that I had once myself, and uh, I have this um, thought in my mind that everybody's got a story. You, you, the listener, you. I'm talking to you. You have a story, and I think it's probably fascinating. I'd like to hear your story, and this was the basic concept that these guys came up with, is that they're just going to interview people just regular people and some, you know, some who have accomplished things in in the area, you know, and some that you'd be like who's this guy, you know? And but everybody's got a story and they're all fascinating. And so the the podcast is called Chatty Light C H A T T Y L I G H T and if you google that, you will find I the first thing that'll pop up if you put in chatty light podcast is probably uh, going to be their facebook page um, and i'm sure you can find it elsewhere too anyway what they're doing is just interviewing people in this part of the state of georgia southwest georgia centered around the town of americas and interviewing interesting people and uh, letting them tell their story well they asked me to be on the podcast. So I did it. And I thought it might be interesting to you if we did a little thing called a swap cast where two podcasts make a podcast and then they put it out on both feeds. And it, you know, it's a way to help each other because some of you you might enjoy going and listening to the other chatty light podcasts and some of the people over on chatty light might go hey you know i kind of like to some of that grass talk radio stuff so it's just kind of a mutual back patting, like i'll help you you help me scratch you know i'll scratch your back you scratch mine that's the idea of a swap cast and we've done it before i've i did the thing with uh, picky fingers banjo podcast um so you get the drift here But, you know, I'm kind of lazy, you know, like having a hard time getting any podcasts out because of all the other things going on. And uh, so I was thinking, well, this is, you know, it's just this is an excuse for me not to have to make one this week when they get it done. And anyway, they got it done. And so we're just going to sit here and listen to I, I, I haven't even listened to this yet. So I know I said the things that I said. I mean, I was there. But it's been a couple months ago, so I don't really remember. It will be as fascinating to me as I hope it is to you. Anyway, so here we go. This is Brad Laird being interviewed on the Chatty Light podcast.
2: Now I'm a fellow with the heart of gold, and the ways of a gentleman I've been told, the kind of guy that wouldn't even hurt a fleet. Me and a certain character, met, the guy invented that cigarette, I'd murder that son of a gun in the first degree. You do that now. now it ain't because I don't smoke myself. And I don't reckon it'll hinder your health. I've been smoking them all of my life, and ain't it yet? <laughs> but them nicotine slaves are all the same. At a petting party or a poker game, everything's gotta stop while they have a cigarette. Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. Pop, you smoke yourself again Tell St. Peter at the Golden Gate You hate to make it wait You just got to have another
3: cigarette Hey guys, thanks for listening to Chatty Light. Our guest this week is Bradley Laird. He's a podcaster and musician. If you like what you hear here, tune into to his show Grass Talk Radio or listen to him play with Cedar Hill. Thanks to the Chatty Light team and have thank game you Brad. a chance
2: the other night. Old Dame Fortune was... Right. The kings and queens just kept on coming around I was hitting them hard and betting them high But my bluff didn't work on this certain guy He kept on calling and laying his money down Well, he raised me and I raised him I sweated blood, you gotta sink or swim But finally he called and didn't raise the bet I said, ace is full, pal, how about you? He said, I'll pay you in a minute or two right now I I had to have me a cigarette Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette is, you smoke
3: Peter Gate, you Brad, thanks name. for being here. I you hope you think our Chatted Light Day. studio is state-of-the-art and huge and new and great and upgraded. And uh, I'm not sure how long you've lived around here, and I haven't known you for very long, but I'm excited to get to know you, and I'm just very appreciative that you're here. So uh, we've been starting out with when and where were you born, and you can
0: fill your intro in from there. When and where? Well, uh, when, 1959. And young man I, I used to uh I would always write the uh, like the bio stuff for our website and I always put Brad was born on a hog farm in Indiana in 1959 and it's actually true although I wasn't born on the farm I was born in the hospital uh, <laughs> but I, I I was an Indiana farm boy you might say although my dad moved away from Indiana very well before I made it to the third grade we were in Georgia we moved to Kennesaw and uh I developed a heavy southern accent I'm probably the only child of the four in our family who actually has a pronounced southern accent and I'm quite proud of that should be you know politically I would consider myself a copperhead just you know you guys can look that up on Google or something
3: <laughs> third grade is 10 60, years old yeah yeah Ten-ish. so
0: you moved to Kennesaw well I must have been must have been for that because I, I know it was 67. okay that we moved
3: here Trying to the Like the can't Braves,
0: I think the Atlanta Braves had just moved to Atlanta the year before, I Got gotcha. you. Okay. What, from, from where? I can't recall from where because I was too little then. But, no idea for me. Uh,
3: what did your parents do that made you move?
0: After my dad was in so many different things over the years. He was, um, you know, grew up on a farm in, in Indiana. Well, he was born in Illinois, but it was that, I was, used to joke, it's it, it was right on the border. Very close. Mom was on one county over in Indiana, and he was one county over in Illinois. Um, That's where they were born and raised. Dad, uh, you know, fed up with farming. He tried farming, you know. But I have his old farm record books from 1953, 54, 55, 56, where every penny was documented by my mother, who kept, the books, mm. who who you think about, she was only 17, maybe 18 when they, you know, very young. And dad was a couple years older. I mean, literally, if dad bought a washer for two cents at the hardware store, it was written in that book. She had it on there. How many chickens they got, how many eggs they got each week and a number of hogs. And they bought a truck for $300. And it just, it just goes on and on and on. But you could see at the end of the year, there was nothing left. Right. So after a few years of that, he joined the Air Force and uh, became a, back in those days, electronics was mostly tube technology. Mm-hmm. He ended up uh, down in uh, Biloxi, uh, I think Keesler Air Force Base, um, working on link trainers, flight trainers. And I think they spent some time in Dayton, Ohio, too, whatever that base is up there. So a couple of years of that, and of that course... That was before you were born. Oh, yeah. yeah, okay. That was uh, like 55, my brother was born in '57, so I didn't come along until '59, and they were out of the Air Force by then and back in Indiana. And dad uh, went back and uh, worked in the newspaper business, hopped around from paper to paper, always in the circulation. You know, basically, he was managing a bunch of kids riding bicycles, delivering papers. Right. And, you know, he was pretty young at the time, and the kids were all, you know, kids on bikes. And he was probably in his mid-20s, late 20s, when he was doing that. And I've got all these old 8 millimeter movies of, you know, Dad taking these groups of kids out to a dude ranch in Colorado. It was like prizes and stuff. For the carrier that got the most subscriptions, and all this stuff. He took them to New York City to the World's Fair in 64.
3: Oh, that's awesome.
0: And I got my first record because we'll get to music here eventually, but my dad bought me my first record when I was five. So that was 1964. He went on a trip with a bunch of those newspaper boys to New York City, and they went to the World's Fair. That was the same time the Beatles arrived in in New York. Dad didn't know who the Beatles were, but he bought me a Beatles 45. I want to hold your hand. I don't remember what's on the flip side. I still have the record and brought it home to us. And, of course, immediately my brother and I had to have these these bowl haircuts because we had those buzz cuts before that. <laughs> well, then yeah. I think he started regretting it, you know, immediately. Yeah.
3: He was like, oh, no, changed them forever.
0: And I still have a little, like, I don't know what size for a five-year-old T-shirt from the 64 World's Fair. Yeah, yeah. But you can still go up to New York, yeah. and, and that big ball, that globe thing, is still sitting there right beside Chase Stadium.
3: So then, did you live in Kennesaw after that. After y'all moved there, you stay there. Yeah, until... officially,
0: we we moved to Marietta in '67. So I was going into third grade, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story about that. In Indiana, where we left, they taught cursive writing in the second grade. No, they taught in third grade. I got it backwards. We came to Georgia. The school I was enrolled in taught it in the second grade. So I skipped it. I didn't know how to do it. And so in the third grade, they're wanting everybody to write in cursive. I, I wasn't going to get to that <laughs> till the next year, but they'd already covered the basics of it the first year, you know, how to do the Palmer method, all that. And uh, I was kind of freaked out because I, you know, couldn't do it. Didn't even know how to do it. And I remember my mother having a conversation with the teacher, Mr. Kennedy, and, uh, she said, well, what, what are we going to do? You know, we, and he said, just tell them to connect the letters and don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's what I still do to this day. I just kind of connect them, draw a little line yeah. between them. So anyway, we moved down here, you know, and that was a pretty uh, wild time in Atlanta because, you know, the civil rights act had just been passed. So there I am third grade 67 by '68, we had Robert Kennedy assassinated, Martin Luther King assassinated. There was a lot of tension in Atlanta, um, and rightfully so. But so I kind of grew up, you know, in that atmosphere. You did might say. you
3: no- Did you notice that when you were that young, or is this like a I, hindsight? Th- the only thing knew? that
0: I remember about in particular was I remember my brother and I were had set up a tent in the backyard. This would be '68. Like over the clothesline, tied a blanket out, and we were eating army beans. Mom had made us a pot of army beans because all you saw on the television when you were a kid was Vietnam, 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 Vietnam. That's all that all, all was on, and Batman, you know, and the Flintstones and stuff. But it, when the news came on, bam, map of Vietnam, these starbursts, how many people killed, how many of the, you know, we just grew up in that. And I do remember the Kennedy assassination too, because I was very, I was four. But I remember I can one of my earliest member, memories is looking at the television set of uh, I guess when they were loading the casket onto the plane at night. Mm-hmm. I can just see that airplane sitting there and the just long, long sequence with nothing happening, people just walking around, and I think they eventually you know loaded his body onto that Air Force One or whatever it was. That stuck with me. And I don't think it would have if I just walked through the room and saw that on the television. Right. What stuck with me is, like, my parents seem very concerned.
3: Yeah.
0: Same thing with the, um, when uh, Martin Luther King was, or I guess it was RFK, was assassinated. We were camping out in the yard. Mom came out. In the middle, whenever, I don't remember what time of day it was. Come in the house. Immediately. The break, break camp and come in the house. She just like closing up the doors and stuff. She just gathering her chicks, you know, like a mother hen, like, cause she's seeing this stuff on the news. She yeah. don't know what's going to happen. Like the world. I think it was ending. when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Well, you just, you know, I don't know
3: that dang CIA, man. Yeah. yeah. You're getting them. <laughs> oh, we can, <laughs> Hey, you know, that'll be for my
0: other podcast. The other one I'm going to start. You know,
3: Are you talking about starting a conspiracy theory podcast? Cause want to be a guest. I could though. I could. I'm, I like that. I'm interested. Uh, you know, I have enough enemies as it is without
0: you know <laughs> deliberately causing them, no. without putting but, them on there. But I'm telling you this stuff to tell you that when I moved to Georgia, I didn't even know where Georgia was. Right. You know, we had gone to Florida a couple times as a kid down to Daytona Beach, and we would stop somewhere in in, in Lexington, Kentucky, or something at the Holiday Inn. You know, uh, but I didn't know anything. You know, what do you know when you're that age? Yeah, nothing. But. I want to tell you this. When I got to Georgia, entered the third grade in Marietta, Georgia, and the first recess, I don't know anybody. I'm just a kid. I'm like Charlie Brown, you know, except I don't know anybody. And, uh, like, three little boys my age from from my class kind of, you know, come up to me and kick in the dirt and spitting and stuff, you know. And they're like, one of them, the, the tallest one of them said, are you a rebel or a yank? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. And I guess I didn't know what to say. I said, what are you? He said, I'm a rebel. I said, I'm a rebel too. You're like,
3: good, just checking you out.
0: And then I went home that night. I asked my mother, what's a rebel? What'd she tell you? I don't recall. I don't recall. She told me that later. I'd forgotten that part. She said, you asked me, what is a rebel? And, you know, I'm not so sure she knew because the, you know, civil war wasn't fought in Indiana
4: Mm -hmm.
0: or Illinois or, you know, it did make its way into Pennsylvania and, you know, a few places, but it wasn't on your soil. Right. And so the memory didn't stick around as long. You know, I have um, several relatives who fought in the civil war all for the union. Sadly, Um, (laughs) I have to say that now that I'm in Georgia, and uh, I am a, as I said a copperhead but um one you know he joined like he wasn't old enough to join and eventually he he got old enough to to make his way in and joined went down around Vicksburg died 6 months never saw battle he died of typhoid but anyway totally uh, I lost complete track of everything but coming down basically once we got to Georgia. I just became a you know kid from Georgia, mm-hmm. and Dad continued in the newspaper business, and which eventually brought us to the south side of Atlanta to Jonesboro, where he was working for a newspaper in Clayton County, and that's where I more or less grew up. All of seventh grade through high school, I was there in around the Jonesboro area, you know, so south you did, side, south side Atlanta guy. You basically.
3: did normal kid stuff. Oh yeah. Did you get Back into in, music in school?
0: We were in band. You know, I was I played the French horn in the band in seventh grade. Um,
3: Respectable instrument.
0: My brother was two years older, so he was already in the band for a couple of years, and he played the trombone. And mom said, well, you know, next year you're going to be able to be in the band. What do you want to play? I don't know. You know, trombones so seems kind of cool. Maybe a trumpet, and I suggested a trumpet. She said, what do you think about a French horn? Okay. Yeah, sounds good. And we went up to Ken Stanton Music in Marietta, and uh, they bought a French horn, which is extremely expensive. I didn't know it at the time. And they paid, you know, like $8.28 a month or something like that for mm-hmm. like five years to right. pay for that thing.
3: <laughs> they put and like $10,000 short. Le-
0: leading into the bluegrass thing, which we'll eventually get to, when I graduated high school, I played French horn all along the way. And I got the bluegrass bug, in particular, banjo. I heard Earl Scruggs. And I got the banjo bug. And I can remember sitting in band class with my banjo picks on, where, you know, you stick your hand up the bell inside the horn. I'm sitting there, and practicing my rolls inside that French horn. I didn't care a thing about a French horn by then. Right.
3: Because
0: I thought, what am I going to do when I get out of school? Who am I going to play with?
3: Can you still play one if I had one here and gave it to you?
0: I could maybe two or three notes. Yeah. It's yeah. been a long You lose your lip. I mean, you can't. I, I dropped all that entirely. Um, and I get back to Ken Stan Music where we bought it. I was in there one day, and they had a Gibson RB250 Master Tone banjo for $795. I rushed home, got my French horn, which was now paid for which was something like $1,800 when we bought it. Went straight back there. We bought it from that store. I said, I want to trade. <laughs> I it want to trade like, in deal. this French horn for that banjo. And, you know, could you give me payments? No, we don't do that on banjos. And I was like, oh, man. So I went back with my French horn. No banjo. But I still had the burning desire to play the banjo. So... My mother worked at the library in Jonesboro and I had I rambled the library for countless hours after school. just go over there, hang around the library until she got off work. Three nights a week she worked late you know to close it. I had found the Foxfire book books. There were a couple of them by that time. And in one were drawings and plans to how to build a banjo. So I set out to build a banjo. I still have it at the house. If you want to come over and take a look at it, I
3: want to see that.
0: Uh, so I just made one, and I got you know the basic instruction book. You know there was there were a couple of them out at that time, and uh, tried to learn to play it, and eventually moved up to a a banjo ordered out of the pennies catalog. You know the seventy nine dollar sixteen bracket. You know the you know, is probably a K or something like that. Um, and got a little better. Then I bought a little bit better banjo. I never did, uh, not in those years, get a Gibson. And ultimately, I, I put together a kit banjo. It was about half the price of the assembled Gibson. And I still play that one today. Nice it yep, came from Stuart McDonald. And anybody who is into luthier-type stuff or instrument building will be familiar with Stuart McDonald. Back in those days, their catalog was four pages, of craft with a staple in the corner. And all they sold were banjo kits. That was it. And they started out m- manufacturing um, wooden uh, snow skis.
3: Hang, that's so, that's so random, like to end yeah. up at that.
0: And it was because they knew how to laminate and bend wood, right? And one of the guys had taken up the banjo. I said, "Can we make a banjo hoop, a rim, a pot?" And so they start making them. And they ultimately made a lot of parts for other manufacturers. You know, they were selling bent wood rims. Um but anyway, they, they are now the place for, you know, like luthier stuff. You want to build mm-hmm. an electric guitar, you can go buy everything you need. Right. And tools and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, I was there back then, you know what I
3: mean? Did it first. Yeah. So when you got out of high school, that was when you did the banjo stuff. Yeah. After, I've, after you were done with that.
0: Yeah. At, when I was senior or maybe a junior, so around 75, 76.
3: Would you, did you go to college when you got done? Uh,
0: yeah, after a couple of years. I stuck around a couple of years saving up money to go to college.
3: Mm-hmm. What would um, you do? Where where'd you go?
0: Um, I went to ABEC down in Tifton, um, which I'm leading up to that very quickly. When I got out of high school, I we had a little band in high school called C.D. Mason and the Rex Mill Ramblers. All I wanted to do was play bluegrass. All these guys wanted to do was play everything but bluegrass. Eagles, uh, you know, it was everything. They were. It was hard to know what kind of band they even were. A little bit of country, like they liked to do Don Williams songs, and then they would do an Eagles song, and then they would do stuff. I'd, I didn't even know what this stuff was. But I did, um, you know, con them into playing a few tunes that required a banjo, and I also took up the pedal steel about that same time. And I was a rotten steel player. But I I thought, well, this is my ticket to be playing because by then the country thing was getting ramped up. And a lot of the bands, you'd see a guy who was sort of a utility man. He's playing a little fiddle, he's playing a little banjo, he's playing steel, he's playing a little electric guitar, he's doing all kinds of things. And everybody else is just on their fixed instrument. You got a bass player and a drummer, keyboard guy, you know. But there'd be this like utility guy. And I thought, if I could do that, so that's that's why I started trying to play everything. Mm-hmm. Got a mandolin, probably in seventy five or six. You know, Penny's catalog mandolin. I can still remember the smell opening that box. It's something about that uncured lacquer straight from Japan or whatever, you know, and that tissue paper. I'm opening it in the mall parking lot at Southlake Mall where they had the catalog <laughs> center. I mean, I'm opening it and tuning it and playing it. It came with a little one page instruction sheet, which frankly is all a person needs, but. Anyway, so I was really just eating up with the idea of being a banjo player. I was working at a factory, just doing all kind of stuff and playing a few gigs with that high school band. And then I thought, well, my mother's pushing, you know, think about going to college. Think about going to college. All right, well, you know, I was a Boy Scout, so I thought, well, forestry sounds pretty good. So I went down to ABAC, signed up for the two-year forestry program. That was I arrived there in the fall of 79. In my Dodge Colt, a little five-speed Dodge Colt, rubber floor mats, no air conditioning. It was That car probably cost $1,700, I'm guessing. Probably about that. Anyway, in that car, I had my banjo, a mandolin, a fiddle, an acoustic guitar, <laughs> and an upright bass. Yeah. And a grocery bag full of clothes and a typewriter. An old manual typewriter. That's how I arrived. And my my only intention there was to put a bluegrass band together. And I thought if I go way down there, because in Atlanta, it was like everybody wanted to play country and rock. And I'm like, if I go down there to the sticks, everybody will be into bluegrass. Of course, I was completely wrong about that. <laughs> it was actually worse there. There were no bluegrass players there. Although I did bump into a guy on my very first day. I'm loading all them instruments up to my, dorm room, a 211 Branch Hall, in case you want to go visit. There's probably a plaque on the door. Brad Laird once occupied this room. Uh, anyway, I'm lugging stuff up, and somebody spotted me hauling up a banjo case or something, and a guy came, tapped on the door, and he said, are you Bud Laird? I said, yeah. And he had a banjo case in his hand. He said, let's pick, and he opened it up. So I grabbed a guitar and we started playing some. And I met this guy, Mark Graves was his name. But he called me Bud. And I said, yes. I didn't stop and think that's not actually my name. you know. Anyway, <laughs> so I became known as Bud Laird. And it's, it's in the yearbooks. I started signing my papers, Bud Laird, all the day back. And I'll get a call, you know, 20 years later. Somebody leave a message. Hey, let me speak to Bud. You know, my wife's like, "Who the hell is Buck? <laughs> well, it's me. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's me. And then when I left a back, I went back to Brad again.
3: So did y'all make a band? This guy, yes, you we met? did.
0: We formed a band called Pony Express, four piece, upright bass. Um, that guy that played the banjo, his roommate was an electric bass player. He was really into Mother's Finest and all kind of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He had a Gretsch electric bass, and I had that upright. And I'm like, try this. You're gonna have to play this one. So he took over the my old K that I had back then. And uh, I, by default, became the mandolin player, which I didn't really want to do, but we needed one. You can't do bluegrass without a mandolin. So I started playing the mandolin, but then all my free time I played banjo, And uh, we had a guitar player, a guy that one of them knew. And a pretty decent sounding band. And so by the summer of 80, we were back in those days to get a gig. You know, there was the usual stuff around the campus. You know, some we were picking all the time, and somebody would come to you and say, hey, the forestry club is having a thing, a wildlife supper. You guys want to play? Well, we just go play. Didn't get paid. Mm-hmm. But we'd get these things around the college campus, and we tried to drum up little gigs in the area where we could. Like, there was a forestry convention uh, that happened every year there. Somebody said, hey, hey. They're having this party at the Holiday Inn, you know, I think it might have been the first paying gig where we made 150 bucks or something. So we're trying to really get into it, but we wanted to play bluegrass festivals. So every year there was a magazine called Bluegrass Unlimited. Once a year they produced a band directory where you could put your name in there and say, hey, we're a bluegrass band, here's our address and phone number. And then also in another issue, once a year, they printed a festival directory and at that time there were probably 450 bluegrass festivals listed the date the place and the contact the address or maybe a phone number so we just went through there circling all the festivals that we wanted to play picked out about 50 of them and we printed up a letter on our own letterhead my dad was a printer he left the newspaper business opened a little print shop so it was easy to get this stuff printed we got a you know eight by ten glossy printed thanks dad i probably still owe him for those pictures. We had, you know, printed stationery, and we needed a demo tape. So we went up into the, like, one of the classrooms. Every All the buildings were just left unlocked all the time there. So we just found a room, you know, on the third floor of somewhere, set up a, a cassette deck with two mics, and recorded a bunch of stuff. And then I duplicated these cassettes on a little double cassette deck that I had found at Goodwill. Went to Radio Shack, bought, you know, fifty tapes, made these dupes of three songs. And we mailed these out. We played a bluegrass festival every weekend during the summer of nineteen eighty, just based on sending that out we're in five states. Oh yeah, that's
3: awesome. This is just That'd amazing. To tour.
0: You can't do that today. It doesn't right. work. It just doesn't work that way. People were willing to give you a shot. And I guess our stuff looked looked pretty presentable. You know, There's a picture of these nice, upstanding young men here with these, you know, and the tape sounds okay. And quite frankly, the bar back then wasn't as high as it is today. Mm -hmm. You know.
3: Probably a lot less content around considering how easy it is for somebody to sit down with a computer and do it, put it on YouTube, and then email it to a thousand people. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's too much. You know, know, with this podcast that I do, I get stuff every day from people. Want me Mm. to put their tunes on my podcast. I'm thinking, have you even listened to my podcast? Because (laughs) what you're doing has nothing to do with bluegrass. But anyway, it's easier to, like, mass send stuff out, but it's not as effective. Right. So anyway, we made it through all of college, and then after that, a couple of guys went to UGA, and I came back home and reformed a new version of Pony Express. And that's when we got Buddy Ashmore in on guitar, who, as we were talking about Trent, his great his nephew. brother's grandson, right, yeah, great nephew. There you go. Works at Pat's place. Uh, anyway, it's a small world. After that all. that
3: is the smallest world thing I've heard in a long time. as yeah. is, is, you know, in Trent's. And two uh, weeks ago, he was at,
0: out at my barn for a big overnight jam session thing that I had. So I'm still picking with Buddy Ashmore after all those years. I met him in in probably 76.
3: Or how'd so. you how'd you meet him?
0: In a music store. There was a little music store in Stockbridge called The House of Music. And it literally was just a house and in the basement was the studio real to real. Which ultimately I got in this other band and we recorded an album there real to real. But it, they had a little Saturday morning picking session, I would go down there, you know. And Buddy walked in. Immediately invited me over to his cabin that Friday night for a pick and I tell this story on one of one of my podcast episodes, so I won't bore you with the whole tale. But uh, knowing known him a long, long, long time.
5: Yesterday, as I went walking, I saw a sight, and it left me cold. I won't carve funeral possession, I met coming down the road, and I thought about the man who lay within and where are all the people that he once called friend. I won't call funeral possession, ain't my idea of a fitting end. I said, friend, now did you see it? And can you tell me how this could be? He said, son, it's not unusual just a thing that we call reality. And I thought about the man who lay within and where all the people that he was called friends. A one-call funeral possession ain't my idea of a fitting end. Mama, now let me tell you about the sight that I have seen. She said, Son, you shouldn't bug me while I'm watching Channel 17. Cause there are things that happen every day, and there's nothing we can do, nothing we can say. You should know that future possessions is for the living. Anyway.
0: That was Pony Express 2, that ran along till 83 and uh, probably the, the well, certainly the hottest bluegrass band in the Atlanta area at that time was a band called Cedar Hill. And I knew them. I saw them. You go to a festival, they'd be there, and they'd knock everybody out. I mean, they were just very good, very entertaining. I loved these dudes. I mean, I was jealous. They were getting all these gigs, you know. And there was a lot of convention work in town. And they were playing clubs and, you know, just all kind of stuff. You know, very happening they were busy. And I was jealous of them because we were trying to scare up this and that, play this little festival, or you know, little low-paying jobs all over the place. And I found out that their mantle player was leaving the band. In fact, uh, me and Buddy, who was we were currently in Pony Express together, went to a place called the Moon Shadow in Atlanta to see the David Crisman Quintet. And that was that was new stuff. Dog music was just really coming on the scene. So this is like 1983. Define dog music. Well, dog music is David Grisman's creation. That is sort of a blending of bluegrass and jazz. Okay. Um, and you might even you know say there's some influences there too of of swing and gypsy music. Too, a little Django-type stuff. Mm-hmm. But initially, it was a more Mando-centric acoustic music where he was using two mandolins. He had a rhythm mandolin and him on lead mandolin, and then various super good guitar players. The first was Tony Rice and a bass and a fiddle, which they on their albums, they always call it the violin. Uh, I think it was Daryl Anger, the initial fiddle player.
1: Oh, I see. It's
0: pronounced Dawg, D A W G. Correct. Correct. Dawg music. And uh, by the way, you know, he is, David is well known for his association with Jerry Garcia because they were both in the band uh, and did that Olden in the Way album, which everybody knows. And then they did some stuff later on too. And Grisman was out there in California. He's originally from New York, but. He was out in California and started up this band, the David Grisman Quintet. And at times later, it was the David Grisman Quartet, and then it became the quintet again, and it's, I'm not sure what it is now. He's still playing. Uh, but our the on player from Cedar Hill got really fired up about that kind of music. Everybody did. All the bluegrassers were wanting to try to learn those insanely difficult instrumentals that Grisman was cranking out. Uh, you know, on those initial one or two albums.
3: Mm.
0: And uh, so everybody was into it. At least the younger crowd was. Anyway, that mantle player, Chip Dunbar, he moved to California to try to get, weasel his way into that scene and started uh, taking lessons from Mike Marshall, who also who was playing with Grisman at that time. And, we, you know, he got into that whole California scene, what we used to call the left coast. Um, um, and so I didn't see him very often. I, I would see him at the... Every five years, Cedar Hill would have a reunion gig thing in Atlanta and bring back everybody for one night in Atlanta. And we did that beginning with year 15. So fast forward 15 years. Basically, I auditioned for that that gig. I was standing in line to see Grisman. That would be the first time I saw the Grisman quintet play. With Buddy, who's in the band, Pony Express. Well, right in front of me was the banjo player from Cedar Hill. And we're talking to him, waiting on him to open the doors, you know. And he said, Yeah, you know, chip's leaving. And, you know, a light bulb went off of my head. I didn't want to tell Buddy, you know. So anyway, once we got in there and we got to our where we we're gonna sit, I went over to Jimmy's table, at banjo player Jimmy, like four times during the night. Look, if you're gonna audition, here's my number. Make sure you call me, you call me. And I kept going back and forth, you know. And he called me, and I did audition, and they picked me. So I joined Cedar Hill, and in, in, uh, my first gig was 4th of July, 1983. So I joined the most happening bluegrass band in North Georgia. And you could say uh, even beyond that, uh, maybe even regionally, mm-hmm. because for the two or so years prior to that, they were already playing the big festivals right. in the southeast. Jekyll Island, they're going down to... Florida, Myrtle Beach, Alabama—they're hitting all the big ones, but doing a lot of, you know, corporate type gigs and convention stuff in Atlanta. So I mean, I fell right into it, and they were busy. We're doing fifty gigs a year, and fifty rehearsals, and so I did that for twenty-seven years. I stayed with them, yeah, and they were, you know, really entertaining bunch. I gave um, Alex some samples of some of their some of our stuff, I guess you could say it was our stuff. Um, they were not just known for the music. They were known for putting on a show. It was, you know, a little bit of comedy, a little, you know, like it was entertainment more than just music.
3: Yeah. What was the comedy aspect? What's some well? It varied. It varied.
0: Day. And if you feel like putting in a little bit of some of these tunes or whatever, you just more than welcome to segue gonna, segue to right to into them. Totally. That's yeah. why I brought it. Um, well, you know, there, there were there were tunes like... Well, one of the things we did that started before I joined the band was a thing called Duck Wave. They'd already named it that by the time I joined the band, and I'd seen them do it. And basically, you know, about three-quarter way through a set, the bass player would start introducing this other band, the Dazzling Duck Wavers. And everybody slips off or turns around or something, and puts on all this weird get-up. Hats, sunglasses, crazy stuff, beards, whatever. It varied over the years, and it varied with what tune we were about to do. And then we would now, the Dazzling Duck Wavers, would now do a song. And the, the shtick for it was that the banjo player was born with this incredible talent to sing like a duck. And it's no joke. He is the best duck singer I've ever heard. Ever. Way better than Donald Duck. Right. He he always sounded a little more like there was a duck, I think, called Wacky Doodle or something like that, where you could understand him. You could never understand Donald Duck. But this guy, Jim Duck Adkins, he could do this since he was a little kid. He could just talk like a duck. So he sang like a duck. And we did songs like whatever was the hit on the radio at that time the goofy kind of hit mm-hmm. like we did Elvira we did Swingin you remember Swingin John Anderson i think well, we were Swingin you know yeah. we did um, I heard it through the Grapevine we did King Duck which was a, a parody of King Tut mm-hmm. the Steve Martin thing <laughs> it, it was insanely silly yeah but there's a certain like, if you're playing for mixed audiences, they not, like, absolute music fans, like would fill up a Doc Watson show or a David Grisman show. They're music fans, you know. But we're, we'd be playing for people who maybe have never even heard Bluegrass. Right. And they, they, they enjoyed the humor of it. Yeah. But, you know, we used to always joke that our lawyer said we can only do one Duck Wave song per set. And we did limit it to that. But you could always find some goofy current tune that was out there and then we'd work it up we started doing free bird we, you know like a duck he'd sing it like a duck and some of them were kind of you almost had to have a barf bag with you sometimes They were so just like oh god that please. Might,
3: might be some of the songs that got those not music people into it Then,
0: well right? one prime example is my father he was still alive during those cedar hill years and uh he would come to the shows once in a while he wasn't into music he didn't he couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. He didn't own a record. I never heard, saw him listen to music. Never. But he would come to those Cedar Hill shows, and all he wanted was that comedy stuff. We used to do a Ray Stevens songs and stuff. Sometimes, now that was just the duck thing. We would also intersperse other kind of comedic things like that old uh, Grandpa Jones thing, I'm My Own Grandpa. Mm-hmm. We did uh, It's Me Again, Margaret, which was a Ray Stevens thing. You ever heard that thing? I haven't heard that. It's one. me again. Margaret is a hoot. Okay, so this guy, he he keeps making prank phone calls to Margaret. He keeps calling her up and breathing heavy in the phone and stuff. <laughs> and she calls the cops on him. Well, the cops come and arrest him, and they take him to jail. I shouldn't spoil. You should just everybody go listen to it. it's me again, Margaret. I, I'm pretty certain it's Ray Stevens who did it. They lock him up, throw away the key, but to give him one phone call, and what does he do? He calls Margaret. <laughs> it's me.
3: Anyway, yeah, it's awesome. hilarious.
0: We used to do that and carry a telephone in our case, so he could have a prop and you know stuff like that. People liked, mm. and so you'd show up at a bluegrass festival where you got fifteen excellent bluegrass bands just doing fine music, and then we would get up there and we would play some fine bluegrass music too, and then start hitting them with that kind of stuff and just bring the house down. Right, and it was, it was fun, to you know to see those reactions from people, and I think you know all in all over the years, I enjoy that part of it more than I do the music itself. Although I do enjoy really good music too, and the other thing with Cedar Hill was the singing. We were um, just obsessed with trying to sing to the best ability that we could the best of our abilities and that was instilled in us when I joined the band their fiddle player was a chorus teacher so he wouldn't put up with us singing the wrong notes or out of tune and he would teach us how to sing or stuff you know and we worked up some elaborate things that he'd pull out of the you know his library over at the choir you know his he taught at Marietta High School and eventually he left the band moved to Colorado and then Ultimately, and I believe he is still currently the choral director at the University of Kentucky. So that's who taught us how to sing right, you know. And we did a lot of stuff that was fairly detailed, and you really had to be on your toes. Hmm. Some four-part acapella stuff, gospel tunes, that kind of thing. But even just you know singing the old standards, we try to really tighten them up, and you know, now none of us were great singers, except maybe that guy. You know, yeah, he, he, he truly the was. But, you know, it's been my belief that anyone can learn to sing if they can just start being on pitch. Right. That's first. Well, first is deciding what note. Mm-hmm. You get that figured out. Then you actually try to sing that note. But then you can carry it further than that. I've talked about this in one of my podcast episodes, or maybe several, that you just start in that. Now you got to get your diction together. You got to almost sing with the same accents. Like, there was a guy moved down here from Chicago, uh, moved to Atlanta. About the time Pony Express, about in the early 80s, he was fresh from Chicago. We were trying to reform the band, so I was going to switch from mandolin over to banjo and use this guy on mandolin. And we got together, did a dry run, see how it went. It just didn't work. Buddy Ashmore singing lead and me singing baritone, and that guy, fresh from Chicago, singing with that, you know, Bob accent. His name was Bob, too, by the way. Yeah, babe. Bob. Anyway, I love Bob. We, we, we <laughs> did a lot of things over the years, um, and he, he's been down here to pickets at my place. Anyway, and he eventually southernized a little bit, but he was a great bluegrass player, but there was something about it just didn't match up. Like, you know, you've heard of brother harmony. You know, well, people that grow up in the yeah. same town, yeah. even blood right? harmony, or the same side of this mountain range, you know, they kind of talk alike and they, you know, match like up a Stanley bit. Brothers or stuff like that. But you put somebody in, you know, take a guy from Sweden and drop him in with a band from East Virginia or West Virginia, or you know, anywhere, he ain't going to sound like them. He's going to stick out. So right. we always worked on those kind of things to try to, you know, take pains to. Put our syllable our consonants together and even the shape of your tone you know is it nasally is it more round for particular parts you know it takes a lot of work I mean it takes tremendous rehearsals to be able to do that and I guess you know I'm spoiled because once you've experienced that level of performing I'm not talking about like we were the greatest thing but we put the work in necessary to be as good as we could be and then when you, a lot of times, jam sessions at, at festivals, people are just slinging them out there. They don't care. You know, it's like just chaos. Mm-hmm. And then you pick up an album like a Adele McCurry Band or you pick up, you know, Third Time Out or um, Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver. Just listen to that. You get that good by working. Right. And polishing honing and you know it doesn't happen automatically and i I think a lot of people come into bluegrass with the wrong impression that they think bluegrass music is what they're hearing at jam sessions Mm -hmm. and it's not because then if they hear a real band who actually puts the time in it's like 10 times better and maybe they're not more talented maybe they might be they might not
3: they're just tighter. You
0: put the spit and polish on it and it becomes right. something and it's it's something you could market a lot better too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the same goes for all forms of music. Yeah, you know? for
3: sure. Did you have to work at all? Did you do Cedar Hill full time? No,
0: I have day job. All right. of us were day jobs. So and I've I've told people many times that you know, we took it as far as we could and still maintain families and day jobs. Mm-hmm. So there were many times where I would have, you know, a rehearsal and two gigs and then a weekend and drag myself into work. Right. Which, you know, causes a lot of musicians to become self-employed over time. Mm. But I had various jobs. I, I had my own print shop for eight years. I worked at a packaging company for about ten years. And I you know it was a prerequisite. If I'm gonna work here, first of all they already knew me that sometimes I'm gonna have to leave early. Right. Three o'clock, I gotta go because we got to be in Sandy Springs at five, you know, so just letting you know.
3: Before you hire me. Sometimes so you don't, I gotta yeah, go. you
0: don't accept positions that would not work with it. You know, right. like I can't be a UPS driver, you know, mm-hmm. sorry, that ain't going to work. Although there was one famous man on player who was, but, um, <laughs> he didn't do it much. though.
3: So, so um, what, when did you end up moving here?
0: 10 years ago. So this is, 20, so 2011, we moved here. And, you know, I'd run my course when I was in two bands at the same time Pony Express and Cedar Hill. And I began to notice that I was noticing that I couldn't play as well as I did. You know, back, I listen to some of those recordings and I'm like, I can't even believe that's me. Because we were fast, we were young and we were fast, And you know. And over the years, you know, your hands start to go get a little arthritis and you just slow down and it's just. And uh I could see it coming. And I kind of made the switch over to bass about five years before. And as I told you, I had a bass from 1978 forward. Mm-hmm. I'd always played around on the bass. And, you know, played at pickup gigs. Somebody need a bass player, I'd go play bass. But I gradually, I saw my mandolin playing beginning to degrade a little bit. Uh, a lot, in my opinion. And, uh... So I just started playing bass, and so I started another little band where I was the bass player with some students of mine. I started teaching, too, in 82. and
3: uh, Just teaching, like, private lessons?
0: So. Teaching uh, banjo lessons at a music store. I went in there buying banjo strings, and the guy said, do you play banjo? I said, yeah, that's why I'm buying these strings. He said, well, we need a banjo teacher. Do you teach? I'm like, well, you know, as long as I know more than they do, sure. I do now, yeah. Because I'd only been playing you know, five years at that point. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, I was qualified to teach beginners. And there's a thing about teaching that the teacher learns more than the student. Right. Because he understands more and, and you learn how to teach by teaching, you know? Mm-hmm. So over the years I improved. I did in the, let's say the last seven or eight years before I moved to America's before I just completely ditched Atlanta and came down here. I was playing in three bands, teaching Ten to fifteen students a week, mandolin, guitar, banjo, bass. I don't teach fiddle, by the way. I don't, I, I play a fiddle, but I would never play it in public. It's the most god awful mess. Oh. <laughs> but I wish. I mean, I I could be if I could do anything well, at the standard that I want to play at, it'd be the fiddle. Yeah, and I've played with and I know some just super excellent fiddle players. And all you have to do is listen to them. And then listen to me, and you know why? I just said no. I mean, I do, like when Darlene's gone for the weekend or something, you know, Jackson, they're off at some, going to the aquarium in Atlanta or something. You know, I get to fiddle out. And i will take me about a day to, you know, I'm still playing those same six tunes that I started back at ABAC. And I still can't play them. But once in a while, I hit a little something that keeps me interested, you know. Anyway, I, so I made the transition to a bass player thinking, well, I just don't notice any speed problems on the bass because bluegrass music is known for speed. Right now, it's also there's a lot of beautiful slow bluegrass stuff and mid mid tempo stuff, but it's pretty athletic at the upper end. And if you can do it, fine. But if you can't, it, it just you can, you know there's just you can't fake it. Well, you can fake it, but it's too obvious to And I never had that problem on the bass because essentially when you're playing a full tilt bluegrass breakdown, the bass is playing one note for every four that the banjo or mandolin is playing. Right. And even the the fiddle can hold a note, one long extended note, you know, so they have time to rest. But I always felt like it was just just getting harder and harder to keep up with these younger, hot players, you know. (laughs)
6: The rain, the tears
5: are falling, and I feel the pain. Wishing you were here by me. But to in this misery, and I wonder, why, why, why,
6: why wonder Oh why? Why, 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 why she went away. And I wonder where she will stay, my little girl. Run, 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 run.
0: I kind of moved over to base. And uh, when we moved down here, um, that's really all I was doing. I was teaching a few mandolin students around town, mm-hmm. just trying to kind of recreate on a smaller scale what I was doing up there. Yeah. And by that time, I was all into that instructional material stuff on my website, bradleylaird.com. There it is. Um, Link it in the show notes.
4: Check
0: yeah. it out. <laughs> I, the last... During that last decade, before I moved down here, I wrote a book. One of my mandolin students, he he kept like, how do you improvise? How do you improvise? Teach me how to improvise. Well, I'd never really thought about it much. You know, up to then, I was teaching people chords and tunes. It just didn't really come up that much with beginners. You know, they're not ready to improvise yet. And yet, every time at a gig or at a festival, I mean, that's... Ultimately, what I'm doing, or any solo that you create. And you may have played that pretty much that same basic solo for 10, 15 years, but it originated with you thinking it up and then modifying it over time. So I've always tried to explain to my students that solo creation is just slow improv, where you have plenty of time to think about what you're going to do, planning it. You know, it's like composition, where improv is composition on the fly. So if you can learn to write a tune, then maybe you can get better at writing a tune instantly, especially on a tune you don't even know. And you do get better at that. So I wrote this book called Mandolin Masterclass, and it was essentially to try to explain how I thought when I was trying to create a solo for a tune, how to improvise. And I started peddling them online, printed books and uh, didn't think I'd ever even sell a book. I, I printed the first copy, and I gave it to my student, who bugged me about it for so long. I'm like, here's your damn book. And I give him the <laughs> You know, now you, can, now you can quit bugging me about it. I've written it. Here it is. And I printed one copy and gave it to him on, a, on my laser printer, and I punch it uh, with, a, you know, that coil binding. Anyway, give him the book. Well, he comes back next week. This thing is great. You need to sell this book. I'm like, where am I going to sell this book? I don't know anything about selling any books. Well, there's this website called Mandolin Cafe. You put a classified ad on there and sell them. I'm like, all right, to prove you wrong, I'll do that. And I took a picture of the book, and I made a little classified ad. I'm thinking, man, these things. This is like 80 pages, and they're a total pain in the rump to do. And I made a CD that goes with it. I would have to have the CD and the label. I'll make it 25 Ain't nobody going to buy one anyway, but if they do, I buy one make it worth my <laughs> trouble. I'm a, these are going to cost me like nine dollars a piece or something. So I put the ad up there. I told my wife that I was doing that. She's like, huh? That's nice, honey. All right, cool. Well, about uh, so that was in the morning. I put the classified ad up about 10 o'clock at night. I checked my email, 35 people wanted to order this. And I didn't even have a Place, it was just contact me. Here's my email. Contact me. I want to order. I'm like, dang, hey, this is going to get my calculator out. I'm like, I believe I can do this. So I went down to the print shop where I worked as a typesetter part time. And I said, I need 50 of these printed and bound. And I started burning CDs. I'm making it. I'm thinking this is going to be by the end of the week, I sold 200. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. I'm like, dude, I'm going to quit everything else and just sell this book. Of course, you know, it's new. So it, you know, there's that product life cycle that goes up and then it goes down. Right. And as it started going down, I thought, well, I've got all these people's email address and nobody has returned the book. They all think it's pretty good. I'll sell a few hundred of them. I'll write another one because there's all this other stuff I didn't talk about. So I wrote a book called Mandolin Training Camp, which was a whole book of exercises for metal players, so you get better, physically better at playing. You know, so I did that one, sold a bunch of them. And I thought, well, I'll do another one, and I, I'm 18 books later today. Oh shit! I yeah. did not expect you to say that. Yeah, I mean, when I call it a book, it's not like War and Peace, right? They're yeah. instruction manuals. Mm-hmm. I think probably the longest one is probably 120 pages. The shortest That's... ones are maybe 32 pages. Little, little is two books.
3: Brad Bradley Laird's Mandolin University. Yeah, there you That's, the, that's the
0: one that you were talking about. Yep. Of course, you've got many more. That's the one. Now, so are they all? Are all of these? I, I see, like I free delivery are via are internet. <laughs> BradLaird.com but it's <laughs> slash a bunch of. Other yeah, there's stuff. a bunch of different stuff. It's BradleyLaird.com Brad, yes, So, yes, so yes. if you go to there, we'll, we'll have it
4: linked. Yeah. So it, it, if, if you, you go, go there, Twitter you'll right see
0: there, right, right, what right. I've ended up doing was creating a whole bunch of material for. Mandolin, obviously. I've written bass, uh, bluegrass bass, instructional stuff. Um, Clawhammer banjo, bluegrass banjo stuff. Just a whole bunch of stuff. About the only thing I've not touched on is fiddle. Because I wouldn't <laughs> stoop. I mean, I I can't do that. Um, anyway, I started selling all that. There was a guy in Atlanta who had started a company called Watch and Learn. It was originally called... Cassette and video learning systems, and uh, these two guys that I I knew them both—they were musicians around Atlanta—and they'd started. They made the first uh, video cassette how to play the guitar tape, and commercially sold it. Mm -hmm. They'd been doing these books and cassettes before, and you know one of them was a banjo player, so it was a lot of banjo stuff. And they start a website. And this was the same year that YouTube started. And so they started putting little snippets from the videos onto YouTube, which then if you put up a video, you could get a thousand views that instant. Because right. there wasn't nothing up there. Yeah, nobody's doing anything. You know, if you search for banjo, you're going to see it. Today, you know, there's like 50 million banjo videos or something up there. Uh, but it was kind of a golden moment uh, where they could they could create longer videos that they sold like 20 minute, 25 minute video lesson on some some topic. And then they put these little 5 minute free lessons up on YouTube to try to push people over to buy the videos. Right. But they didn't have anybody doing mandolin. Neither, you know, they didn't have any mandolin stuff. So they asked me. Cuz they'd seen that book. In fact, they wanted to buy the book right off from me, but I was still making money off of it, so I didn't right. sell it. To Hold them. on. So, cuz he wanted to give me like 50 cents a book. Right. You know, I'm like, I'm making, with shipping, twenty nine bucks, and I've gotten the price down where I'm making them for about four dollars. Yeah, you know? I'm not selling you my book. not yet. Anyway, I ended up uh, starting filming online video lessons for mandolin for them, and it was going up on their site. I was just paid a little measly royalty for doing it, uh, but I also got to part of the deal was I could plug my books in the video. Because rather than reteach it, I could say in the middle of a, a lesson, I could say you know, for more stuff like this, look at mandolin training camp or mandolin master class, or and I wrote a book on you know like the owner's manual for a mandolin, maintenance and you know things that you beginners don't know about an instrument, uh, called the mandolin handbook, and so I was I was peddling those within their thing, and it ended up going to work for them. Because he found out I was pretty uh, adept with a Macintosh and they were all Mac, and that I had this graphics experience. And so that kind of, you know, they were creating all these books. They were doing jazz guitar and drums and harmonica books and keyboards and all this stuff. And you'd go in a music store and there's rack full of their books, which I'll say, watch and learn on them. And so I went to work for them. And uh, because I could read, Standard notation. I already knew how to do typesetting of music notation and tablature, and I could design the covers and stuff like that if if they needed that done. So I a good bit of my time was spent just working on those design projects for their various publications. But I was also then uh, directing and editing their video shoots for all these other guys, like these jazz guitar guy. He'd come in once a week, and we'd shoot – you know, take about an hour, and then I would edit it down into this twenty-minute lesson, and doing some work on their website and stuff like that too. So I I did that, as I was as I was going along, I'm learning how to do video editing, right? And how to not look like a goof on camera. You know? <laughs> so the,
3: arguably the most important thing.
0: Yeah, they got better over time, and but at a certain point, I, I hit a kind of a philosophical difference with them, uh, where they were kind of into this mindset of almost like a subscription idea. Like if we can get somebody to buy it this week, we'll put out another one next week to buy that one. And next week to buy the next song. And next week to buy the next song. And, and I didn't look at it that way. I looked at it like all throughout my teaching. And this is why I will never have any money because I'm an idiot. My, my logic Sorry. was nobody needs more than 30 lessons because I'm just going to be repeating the same stuff.
3: Right.
0: Now, go do it. You know, I'm going to teach you a bunch of stuff, but I'm not going to hold your hand. You know, the probably the greatest compliment to a teacher would be that the guy quits lessons and joins a band or begins to perform or go play at his church or mm-hmm. whatever and continues. I mean, you're a failure if they quit and don't continue. But to have somebody taking lessons from you for five years, they must really know a lot, you know. Yeah. You're just like that.
3: giving them supervised practice at that point. Right? Yeah, I mean, Everyone especially because on.
0: bluegrass is such an improvisational music. I don't want to teach them. It isn't like learning classical piano or maybe 10 years of solid lessons weekly is how you get there. Otherwise, you're never going to play that piece you know, at that level. Bluegrass is not that way. You, you learn the basics of it. You learn, you know, everything from tuning to basic chords and rhythm and and melodies and how to read the tab or how to read the music. And, you know, and you, you teach all these concepts rather than teaching pieces, you know, and how to play, you know, old Joe Clark or something, you know. I mean, you do that as a means to get them there. But then it's like, okay, now you should be able to do it the way I did it, which was I just listened to the records and figured it out myself. Yeah. And, and you develop, you know, better playing habits of, you know, like how you hold things and what fingering you're using, things like that. So I always looked at it as more of a short-term thing. So when I got to about 40 videos completed, I kind of lost interest in it. I didn't want to make video 42 and 43, and 44, 44. Like, I'm just beating a dead horse here. If they can't learn it by now, they're never going to learn
3: it. Give up. Yeah. <laughs> that's, it up.
0: that's long about the time that I moved down here. And I, I made a, a few more since then, and I continue, I, I converted all my books to digital downloads. Everything's now get it right now on your computer free delivery. No printed internet. books anymore. They don't I mean they're still producing some that I did for them. Mm-hmm. They're still in music stores or on Amazon or wherever. I, <laughs> I saw this thing the other day. I wrote a book for them called the Mandolin Songbook, just and they put it you know in their product line. And somebody, some listener to my podcast, sent me a screenshot. He saw it on Amazon. Somebody was selling a copy of it for nine hundred dollars. Oh, <laughs> I don't know what that scam's about, but yeah. I know they could buy it on my site for twenty. You know? well, I noticed uh, you also have the this one, the Jam Session uh, Survival,
1: yeah, kit on
3: mobile. Yeah, you have a mobile yeah. release
0: Heck for that. Yeah, so. that's awesome. See that that little book. That's that's my least expensive product. Of course I have a lot of free stuff all over my site too. Yeah. There's like 450 pages in my site. I just originally I put a whole bunch of free lessons up there to direct them to my books and stuff that I'm selling, you know? Cuz people everybody you no know, every Google search ends with the word free. Yeah, you know. How to play the guitar free. <laughs> <laughs> or and, or free PDF download. You know, and so I use those terms a lot, you know, PDF download, free, you know. Uh, anyway, that, that little book came from me trying to help some of my students who are learning to play banjo, and guitar, and they're taking those first baby steps of going to some jam sessions, and they don't know the songs. So I'm making these cheat sheets, you know, like here's 10 bluegrass songs, and they're probably going to play these. You know, at least you'll know the chords to 10 of them. And then I expanded up to 50, and now it's at 100. And uh, I think it's still useful because while I do advocate people grow out of that crutch, um, I'd still rather they use it than play wrong chords, you know? Sure. So it helps. It helps a few people. And if nothing else, it helps when when going around the jam circle and they look at them and say, so what do you want to play? Every experienced player will know all of those songs. Right, but you pick one off that list, and then you know, and it gives you a list of things to work on. You know, like, you know, you're not a competent player if you can't play all them songs, or at least fake your way through them, or something.
3: Mm-hmm. At the stage of guitar playing that I am, that would be the book I would
0: well, need. Well, it's a, it's a, the one it's handy too. To once in a while, you'll pick up a guy like maybe he's a bass player, but he's not really a bluegrass bass player. He could be a great bass player, but he didn't really know the material. It, just like I would be stuck in a jazz gig i wouldn't know i mean i might a couple of tunes i might have heard i certainly don't know the style and i don't know the, the tunes i don't know the chord progressions and you know you can't play rhythm guitar or rhythm mandolin or really any of it if you don't know the chord progression we don't have drummers and they're the only people that get away without knowing the chord progressions right you know? but it's a crutch and it's helpful to people i Sold a bunch of them over the years. I mean it, you know, wouldn't the total sales of them wouldn't have even bought me a used car. But you know, (laughs) everything's relative in the bluegrass. Everything has to be judged in a bluegrass context. You know, you can be super successful in bluegrass and still basically be broke. (laughs) I mean, I know that firsthand from some top-tier players that I've run into over the years playing at festivals and they're hanging around the campground, you're talking to these guys and they're belly aching and moaning and groaning all the time because there's no money in it. Right. There's, It's like this, there's this, some kind of law they passed um, where only five bands, bluegrass bands, in the world are allowed to be profitable at any given time. Right. And it's, <laughs> you got to love it to do it, and uh, or you have to do what we did, and that's maintain some sort of day, you know, hustle. Day
3: job, like most musicians, I feel like, and a lot majority. of majority,
0: a lot of people, you know, then try to make that music oriented too, like I've done with teaching lessons, and I was a piano tuner too, and things that are oriented around music, you know. Anyway, and I got uh, down here and started the podcast. It was about four years ago. I started Grass
3: Talk Radio,
0: grasstalkradio.com dot com. You can go there. Uh, there are, I don't know, over two hundred episodes of me blabbering on, on and on and on and on about bluegrass. And it's it, truthfully my, my logic for it was I had taught so many private lessons over the years and said the same things over and over and over and over. And sometimes you couldn't remember what you'd said and what you hadn't said and who you'd said it to. You know, if you got five beginner male players, they all start running together. You right. know? They're all learning the same stuff and you and then there was always something missing, even from the video lessons that I do, is that a lot of what you learn from a good teacher has nothing to do with what's printed on that book or on that piece of music you're trying to learn to play. A lot of it is the tales and the stories and the experiences and the advice and the warnings. And you, know, and you can't do that in a 30-minute, 30 30-minute, 30 30-minute 30 schedule. And I, I used to always enjoy whoever was my last student. And I'd usually try to orient my better players toward the end. Because a lot of times we'd do a little something that resembled a lesson for 30 minutes, and then we'd shoot the breeze for two hours, talking about everything else in the world. You know, all kind of stuff. And so that's what I try to make the podcast be. It's your music teacher, but he may not be talking about how to play that thing. He may be talking about, you know, I've done stuff like, um, like, how to, you're going to go to a bluegrass festival. What's all the stuff you should take? You know, like planning to go to a festival.
1: I see one here that says self-hypnosis with Sam Brown.
0: That's, that's <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty interesting uh, one. That guy is a drummer, Berkeley-trained drummer from, he lives in Scotland. Um, he put out uh, some self-hypnosis for musicians' CDs. And I bought one way back. When he first came out with it, thinking, well, maybe this would help my playing, you know, because you're always looking for the silver bullet. And it did help in certain ways. It didn't turn me into Sam Bush, uh, but it, you know, I found it somewhat helpful. So anyway, I just, you know, looking for people that have things that might help people. And, you know, that's to have him on talk for an hour with the guy, you know, it was interesting. And sometimes I've had some high rollers on there where, you know, you're just getting their story, you know. And But I'm always trying to, with interviews, try to pry into, like, the, the nuts and bolts of playing. And not only playing, but of being a musician. And a lot of times those high roller types, their world is a different world than the average person. The average person would just be happy if they could kind of sort of play enough to go to some jams and festivals and have a good time. And that's their... And these guys, you know, like, Grissman can't teach you that. He don't even remember those days.
3: Right.
0: He can teach you. Now, if you want to be another Grisman, you better get with him and people like him because they'll teach you how to get on The Tonight Show and, you know, how to whatever. You know, it's just a different thing. And I think a lot of, you know, people gravitate toward the big stars thinking, well, they're the best players in the world, and they are. They don't live in the same world that the average person does, and I've always tried to orient the podcast for real people, because I am one. Right. It's a miracle that I've done what I've done musically. I mean, I'm not that gifted, or I don't think I have a little bit of musical talent, but I can teach them how to, or maybe encourage them that you can do this. You know, how to start a band. I've done episodes. You know, you should start a band. Because if you don't want to start a band, why are you even doing this? Sally Mays,
1: she won't leave me alone She thinks she's got me cornered and track. She's always calling on my telephone Saying, son, you have got to pay me back Sally Mays, the richest girl in town makes more than any company, she still wants all my money anyhow, saying what you have learned was not free. Across this land I'll always roam, I ain't never gonna go back home, salary is quick but I will have it known. I will not pay back my student loan the trailer from town to town, kick along a path from place to place, Ramble with the rucksack right in your hand, just run from that old Sally name, across this land I'll always roam, I ain't never gonna go back home. Salamé's quick, but I will have it known. I will not pay back my stupid loan.
3: What was your content like during lockdown stuff? Were you uh, interviewing people still? Yeah. Or the phone yeah. and all that?
0: Yeah, in fact, I did more of them because a lot of them, it was easier to get them on board. Yeah, right they were was the working. I had a guy played fiddle with Ricky Skaggs for 15 years. He did one with him, got Mike Bubb on there, got I just started really trying and I would get him and you know mostly inquire like, you know, what advice would they give to beginners. My my podcast is for people who play, not just for fans of bluegrass. It's not a listening show. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of people like bluegrass but don't play it. This is for people who play it or are trying to learn to play it or want to learn to so, it's a niche within a niche, within a niche, within niche. A niche. <laughs> Which basically means I have no listeners. Yeah. <laughs> now, I did top the 100,000 download mark not too long 000. ago. That's, so that's, that's pretty really good. good. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I said this in one of the episodes that sometimes I get discouraged. You know, it, it takes me all day to prepare what I'm going to say and then record it and then edit it and then put it up there and do the web page and you get it up. All this stuff it takes eight hours. This is this worth it? And then I, you know, look a week later, and three hundred and twenty-five people have listened to it. I was like, God! And Joe Rogan's getting like hundred thousand every episode, you know. Man, he's getting like. And he's just so talking about lot, who cares, lot, lot. you, yeah. know, you yeah. know. He'll have some like, MMA man. fighter on there talking trash or something. And I'm thinking, well, it's just what it is. It just is what it is. But then one time I thought, if I went down here and rented the Rylander, and I rented it every Wednesday. At 7 p.m. And every Wednesday, 325 people showed up to hear me talk for an hour. And then they came back the next week and the next week and the next week. You'd be rich. be a big shot. Yeah, yeah. yeah, if I were charging for it, you see, be, but then they wouldn't come. <laughs> because, I mean, yeah, how many people real. would listen to my podcast if real. it was a dollar an episode? Yeah, yeah. I do have some people that support me by, you know, with a Patreon thing or with buying some of my products because... The only commercials that I do are commercials for my stuff, you mm-hmm. know. And I don't do it in a crass way. I just if I'm talking about something like I you know did an episode on how to set up your mantle and if you're a mantle player, you know, and you, let's go through the whole thing. I got the thing in my lap and I'm talking and talking and talking. And then of course I mentioned and by the way, you know, there's a good illustration of that in my book on page 38 <laughs> of the Mantle Handbook. Go to my website, you can get it. You know. So I'm suggesting things. It's not like I'm on there trying to sell CBD oil or something, you know? right. which I don't care if people sell that. But I just, I just, I got enough products to pedal without right. going to like dog collars and weird <laughs> stuff like that, you know. So anyway, that's that's what I do. And then I got down here. I did not know anyone in Sumter County when we moved here.
3: Why did you move here?
0: Uh, t- t- this, it's the truth though, to get away from Atlanta. Not, Jackson, not a bad reason. Jackson um, was my youngest offspring. Was four, about to enter school, and frankly, the schools uh, where I grew up, the very schools that I attended, are not. I wouldn't send my kid there in a million years, right? Yeah, you because know, they might not come home alive. You know, mm. it's it's you know, I don't know. It just wasn't the way it was when I was a kid. You know, riding my bike to the Boy Scout meeting every Monday night. Writing home in the dark, you know, just people don't even let their kids do that kind of thing anymore. So we're just like, well, we need to find, we were both working from home. Darlene had a, an online type employment arrangement, and I did with my website. And I was kind of looking for, you know, like, get out of playing and maybe start something new. You know? Play bass, and, you know, start up something. And I'd up a few students when I got down here, but basically that was the reason just to get away from the hectic the traffic you know growing up in atlanta atlanta grew up around me and man i vibe, i man the miles i've put on i-285 you know coming home it seemed like every gig was always on the north side of atlanta cuz that's where the money gravitated so you're playing up there in sandy springs and then we get done at midnight and got to drive all the way down to the south side and there's nobody on the road but you and the cops and 4,000 crotch rockets <laughs> you know, going around 285 and stuff. It was pretty hairy sometimes. Yeah. Or or playing in, I never had any episode. No, n- never any problem, ever. And I've played, I've been inside the back loading dock area of every major hotel and event uh, venue in Atlanta multiple, multiple times. You know, you go down, look at all the big hotels. We've been parked at the back trying to back a trailer in to that loading dock, you know, where there ain't no room, and come out of there at, you know, midnight. And we never had any problems. You know, you get the guy, you know, one spare change or something. Once in a while, a guy trying to wash a windshield or something. Mm-hmm. But never really had any problems with crime. Never Nothing ever stole. I think maybe one time somebody stole a leather jacket off the stage. But that ain't bad for 30 years, 40 years, 45 years. Pretty of this. good. And yeah. So, but it was just, it got to where Anywhere you wanted to go or anywhere I had to go was an hour. Mm. And now it's 10 minutes. You know, when I leave here in 10 minutes, I'll be sitting on my couch at home. I love
3: Sorry. it. Dude, that's a, I like that so much.
0: I love it. And so I, I came down here, and I didn't know anything about Americas other than when I was at ABAC, our bass player in Pony Express at ABAC, went through the forestry program, and he got hired working for St. Regis Paper Company, Cruising and Timber, and he lived in Americas. Right after Abac, so I came down here and visited him. We'd go deer hunting down there on the other side of Plains. I got really into deer hunting when I was at Abac because there's nothing else to do. You can play bluegrass or you can hunt or fish. That's about it. And I think some of the rich kids played golf, you know, mm. which I didn't. Uh, they didn't have a golf course. They had a they had a driving range and a putting green. So I was pretty good at putter, but nothing else. Uh, anyway, so I'd been to America. And I'm pretty certain that we went to Pat's place. Cause I, I would do that for a couple of years during the early 80s. And I'm I know that overlaps with the time. And I when I first when I moved down here and then I saw that place and I went in, it felt familiar. I knew I'd been in this place. Of course, I've been in every beer joint in the state. Right. Play it. A lot of them look alike. Mm. You know. We played gigs in places that look just like that. Uh, anyway, so I don't know if I really did or didn't. But when we got down here, we're cruising around looking at the place, you know, see Pat's place. I'm like, this looks like my kind of place. It just feels right to me. We go in and sit down and order pizza. And I look up on the wall and there's a picture of a guy sitting on a stool with a banjo. And it was Wayne Arrington mm-hmm. in the picture. Well, I don't know who Wayne Arrington is, but I'm, And then I see, up on the little marker board thing, Bluegrass Tuesday. Why? I found my new home. (laughs) You're like, let's buy a house. Well, of course, Pat Spann doesn't know me from Adam. I don't know anybody in town. At least I thought I didn't. And a buddy of mine from Atlanta, Buddy Ashmore, he called me right when we first started coming down here. We hadn't actually moved here yet. We'd bought the place, but we hadn't moved yet. So during that summer, we'd come down on the weekends and just move a few things, try to fix the place up and stuff. Anyway, Buddy says, well, you know, you need to look up Charlie Sykes. He lives down there. I know he's down there somewhere close to you. So I looked him up. Well, Charlie Sykes has the Brickyard Plantation Golf Course and RV Park, which is now KOA. I knew Charlie. He's a guitar player, and I used to see him at bluegrass festivals around Middle Georgia and South Georgia. You go down to any of the festivals down here at Cochran or, or Osceola, any of those bluegrass festivals. You know, Charlie'd be there with his motor motorhome or something. You know, so I, that was the only guy I knew. So I called him up. He's like, "Well, we need to come out. I'll come out and see your place." You know, so he hopped in the truck, arrived at my house, and he brought Wayne Arrington with him. They're pretty close neighbors down there. He, Wayne lives pretty close to the golf course. down Within a couple miles. And they knew each other. And uh, came to the house. We get them out and start picking. And then they're like, you need to come on Tuesday. Well, uh, Darlene had been in there too to eat lunch and talked to Pat. And then Pat hadn't met me yet and, I, and didn't know if I could play anything. He didn't know anything. And she said, my husband plays bluegrass. I mean, I'm sure he's heard that up hundred times. Right. My husband plays bluegrass, you know? Um, well, we have bluegrass on Tuesday night, but it wasn't really an invitation, yeah. you know, because it, but then I guess he talked to Wayne and said, well, we've already been out and checked him out, you know, We want to come down here.
3: Got certified.
0: Yeah. So I, when I came in, I, I was playing a little bit of mandolin at that time. And I was also, there were a couple other people that come in here sometimes with the mandolin. So I was kind of on standby. I, I'd fill in when Ralph wasn't there on bass, I play bass. Wayne couldn't be there. I'd play banjo. And then uh, I met John Teat down here. He was taking lessons from me. In fact, I met him in Pat's place. He came in there with this man on one night and sat down right next to me. And uh I said, what's your name? Brad Laird. He said, Brad Laird. The Brad Laird. He only bought one of my books. The. He'd seen my website. That's awesome. He's like, I want to take lessons. I'm like, so we started... I started giving him, and I am teaching four or five other people lessons. That's how I met John. He only took you know a couple lessons from me, and then we ended up forming a little band together, me and John and Patrick Owen, mm-hmm. formed the Pluck Tones, which anybody around America has probably seen the Pluck Tones play. Probably see. Great little trio, and I play uh, bass, and John plays mandolin. Patrick plays guitar. So it's kind of bluegrassy, but not really. I've bugged them ever since we started that we need to find a banjo player. But they kind of like that trio. thing. So, anyway. Yeah. The now, Pluck
3: Tones is cool. I got one of y'all's shirts that you did. <laughs> you should play more.
0: They I probably think. still have some of those for sale. <laughs> you have to check with Plucktones.
3: that. Com. Yeah.
0: Pluck tones hasn't, just like everybody, hasn't been playing Yeah. since, uh, you know. I think we have a gig book, but it's, like, permanently postponed or something. Like a wedding gig <laughs> or something. <laughs> But I got a feeling things are going to start happening. Um, we, I think we did two jobs in 2020. And actually, we, the Plucktones were booked to play St. Patrick's Day.
3: Oh, that's 2020. right. That's right, yeah. And
0: it, the day before is the day that finally Pat made his decision, we can't go forward. There yeah. are just too many restrictions. It's going to be, well, they hadn't really landed the rules yet, but. There are a lot of nervous people around. Yeah. And so Pat still owes us one St. <laughs> so Patrick's Day one. gig. And I was <laughs> thinking, well, okay, next year. And well, that yeah, rolled around. We're hour. past that. So next year. Maybe next year. Next year's your year. And I'm year. like, Pat, we got to get over this because I have to live long enough. To, you know, we can't plan things five <laughs> years out. <you> know? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. So anyway, hopefully that'll happen. Now, one little thing I did do, you know, as a, you might say, pandemic relief program, was I started having little jam sessions out at my barn in mid-summer of 2020. Just, you know, I was just dying to pick. So, you know, people would call me up and say, you know, why don't we get together and pick? Not everybody said that, but a few did. I said, as long as you feel like doing it, I'll do it. So we started, I think we had four people at the first one, It would typically be four or five people just sitting out in the barn. And did I probably done a dozen of those? And it just was like, if you're not sick and you're not scared and you like to pick, come on, come on ever, because that's you know that's how I am.
3: Well, we got a um, an at home venue whenever the Pluckton's want to come play, right there in the backyard. Yeah, come hit me up.
0: So anyway, when Pat recently started back up, you know they're they're. Going Gangbusters now, the place I told, well, I, I was joking to uh, sitting next to Pat Span there. And by the way, I'm playing Dobro down there now, which you mentioned on his interview. Uh, I said, Pat, coming in here, it was the first night they started the Bluegrass back. They'd been open, but they hadn't started the music. And he decided, go ahead and do it. So I'm sitting there next to him. I said, I feel two years younger. <laughs> It's
3: like it's back to normal. Yeah, it's as if it,
0: and because uh, you look around the room, it's exactly like you rewound the clock in two years. Yeah. Just the same.
3: People got tired of it. They were ready to get back yeah, in there.
0: Yeah, and it was you know, it's good got to see people's safer. faces, literally. Right. Know? So, anyway, still, still doing that, and hopefully the pluck tones will get rolling again. I got the website and the podcast to keep me busy. Family, you know, wife and son. My wife works over at Habitat.
3: One of the best places in town.
0: She didn't when we moved here, but she, we knew they were here, mm-hmm. and she ended up applying for something over there and got hired, and is still there.
3: Um, so why don't that's a very uh, good thing.
0: I, it's a good, uh, you know, I like that outfit. There, you know, like if she was working for a company that built nuclear missiles or something, I, I wouldn't be too cool with that. Yeah. I probably wouldn't stop her, you know, if that's what <laughs> she, she really wanted to do. Cluster bombs, honey, I'm, you know. <laughs> we sell cluster bombs. We yeah. make, you Just know, the job making whatever. cluster bombs. I mean, but at least, you know,
3: that would be more morally, morally harder to deal with, but the money would
4: Oh man. man. Yeah.
0: yeah. The money might be pretty good. Yep. Yep. But I, you know, I can say looking back through my life, I've I've had a lot of weird jobs. I mean, I've been dishwasher, I've picked peaches, I've you name it. I've, I've, you know, going all the way back to high school. I don't think I've ever done anything that I'm not proud of. You know. Yeah. I mean, they weren't necessarily fun jobs. You know, like mopping the dining hall. I worked in the dining hall at a but you know, you're not killing people. You know, I'm yeah. not into that.
3: A lot of jobs aren't fun,
0: but well, I, I don't like the idea people, that the so product much. of my my production could be used to like harm other people. Yeah. Everything I do is for somebody else's amusement or leisure. Which also, unfortunately, makes it totally optional to everybody, you know, because mm-hmm. when you're playing gigs, doing shows, teaching lessons, everything you're doing is somebody's little leisure activity. And if times get hard, you know, that's the first thing they'll cut first out. First
3: thing you cut, for sure.
0: But, you know, I, all I'm saying is, you know, I can look back my entire life with a clear conscience. I may have led a lot of people to waste a lot of their time goofing around playing a banjo or something. Yeah, but, you know, if that's the I, worst thing you did, yeah, that's probably I'd rather they good. do that than rob banks or mug people, or, you
3: know. So why don't you uh, <laughs> give everybody some quick links of how to find all
0: your stuff? It's very simple, bradleylaird.com. Does that have your podcast linked in there also? Yep, yep. Yeah, if you go to bradleylaird.com, you will see a, Everything. a long page with a whole bunch of little horizontal banners, and each one of those takes you to a different part of my website. And I think you're probably looking at it there. Oh, the I'll top one, I think, is the podcast. Of course, if you want to go directly to my podcast, you go to grasstalkradio.com. There and of course, it's on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, all the usual places. Pick it up. You know, I've got it on Apple Podcasts on my iPod at home. You know, you just, and the simplest way to find it on there is just type in the word bluegrass, search for bluegrass, and it will. It will pop up. You'll see that green box with the mandolin headstock on it. Although, don't be fooled. It's not all about mandolin. It's, I, you know, I covered all. I've interviewed fiddle players and bass players and talked about how to set up your guitar. And, you know, I covered a lot of ground.
3: All the, all the links that Alex has been pulling up will all be put. Episodes?
0: I mean... The Great Wheel, that's one you might like. A, a lot of these, you know, I should have, as I was doing them, made a little index, you know, like when I'm listening back to it, I should have made bullet points of like what's in it. Cause mm-hmm. all I've really done is written a little brief description of what it is. And if you click on one of those, for example, like um, any one of them, doesn't matter. Just pick one. When you, if you click on any of those and you slide down, there'll be more things there. Sometimes I'll have uh, photographs or, you know, if I was talking about a book, like I might have mentioned Earl Scruggs' banjo book. I'll put a link to his book there. It doesn't help me sell books, but, you know. I'm, Do you I'm, have
3: a different I'm, intro and outro song for every episode?
0: Generally, I have the same intro all the time. Okay. The outro varies just depending on whatever I feel like. Yeah, And if, cool. it, if it's a guest, I'll use their music, mm-hmm. or I'll use that as a little segue music to get into their interview from, you know, I'm talking about introducing the show and then i'll use a little of their stuff and i'll ask them, hey have you, got, have you got any particular tunes you'd like me to use here like if you you know you go to the mike bubb interview you're gonna hear some hear some del McCurry band you know coming into it and going out of it i I've, I've played some music on the show I've done some shows where like I'm doing a series over time of like good mantle players you should know about like the 10 great mantle players or I did one called the Dobro Masters. Because if somebody's gotten into the Dobro, they may not know who all these people are. Yeah. And I've been doing this 45 years. I know who, you know, these are the people. If you don't know who Tut Taylor is, I mean, I know you know who Jerry Douglas is, but do you know who Tut Taylor is? Do you know Josh Graves? And so I played songs from them. But it's, you know, if it's for educational purposes, it's fair use.
3: Really? Yes. Well... Funny thing about this podcast is, it's purely purely educational. So for educational, sounds like everything's free it's a game. Nonprofit or, or <laughs> accidentally. If you
0: read the the legalese about it, it's for educational or commentary purposes. That's right. uh, I knew so, the commentary part. So in was, other words, yeah. you could play Britney Spears tracks commentary. under fair use, so long as you trash talk it. That's right. <laughs> you know.
3: Just put on a Britney Spears album, and every five minutes, go shit, trash, garbage, and then people can just listen to it. They just have to hear you say that one
0: word. I mean, you know, garbage. I don't know. I've never been bagged for anything that I've put on. For you know, if you just made a radio show and you just started going through your record collection, maybe they would want something. But because yeah. you're not offering commentary or education.
3: Selling you know? ads in between yeah. is the no-no spot. Yeah. Well, I had a good time talking to you, man. We just did it's been it fun. for real. It was it was very nice. It was interesting to learn about everything. And I think you had a very successful music career, in my opinion.
0: I do, too. I do, too. You know, if, as a way to close this, if a person just got the wild notion to want to learn to play the guitar or play the banjo or play, you know, to play bluegrass, or this applies to any style of music. And they did all the things... That I've done, you could say that is true. They've maximized pretty much done everything you could do. Yeah, you short that. of going pro and traveling. Yeah, I, I don't know how much farther you could go. I've I've played on you know open for <laughs> Doc Watson, Earl Scruggs. Uh, I mean, back to back at festivals with the biggest names in, in bluegrass music and some outside of bluegrass music, like I I told, I did an episode one time that it just shows how dumb I could be sometimes, is we open for fish at Lakewood, and I didn't know who fish was, I mean, I'm there, doing, playing, and I don't even know who fish is, and two guys, uh, the sound guy came up to us, gave me the elbow while we're playing in the middle of our set, and he says, do you mind if Mike gets up here with you? I don't know, ask him, and I pointed to our banjo player, and he went over there, do you mind if Mike gets up here with us? Well, it was their bass player, and he walks out with a banjo in his hand. Because at that time, they were opening every show, four-piece bluegrass band. Yep. That's cool. Mike was playing banjo. I don't know if they switched, like, I think Trey, I don't remember, but they had a banjo, mandolin, guitar, and bass, and they walk out and do the same songs we were doing. And then I saw all those people just crowding at the stage like, we're doing something wrong, guys. (laughs) If this bluegrass band could draw 40,000 screaming fans throwing beach balls and we're playing at these lousy maybe 50 people showing up, what are we doing wrong? And then after like two songs of bluegrass, they transitioned into their hippie jam band thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, Uh, I get get it it. now. No trampolines. But anyway, I would say I would have to agree with you. It is for a bluegrass musician – I, i'm not ashamed
3: yeah well i'm happy i'm happy to know you i think and that, i'm not
0: i'm not done either
3: <laughs> i think you I'll keep be, rolling you have a super legit website and uh like you said you touched on all of it so
0: well that's a super cool thing about bluegrass is there are no age limits you can be five years old or 95 years old it doesn't matter doesn't matter it's wide open it's very very uh accepting in that way where you know even I don't like to go watch these 60-year-old guys playing rock. Mm. You know, well, all with their brand-new white tennis shoes. It'd be hard you to know. see. I'm talking uh, about, like, your local band that does covers, and I'm like, you guys, you know, come on. Just like you wouldn't want to see them doing, like, pop rock, you know, or whatever, that like kitty like, playing at the skate park type bands, you know.
3: It'd be hard to watch Rod Stewart play a <laughs> full-faces show with no shirt on right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, see that's a good thing. In bluegrass everybody's a little more
3: everybody's a little more close, A little more
0: dressed up, you know, a little so it, you know, doesn't show as bad, I guess.
3: Well, thanks for doing this. I, I had a really great time I talking to it. you. Thanks for
0: having
6: me. Well now. Mama don't allow no music, played around
3: here.
6: She don't allow no music, played around here. We don't care what mama don't lie gonna pick a little music anyhow. Mama don't allow no music, played around here. And now mama don't get on old guitar pickin' round here. She don't want no guitar pickin' round here. Now fuss old Bob ain't into starting, but he's gonna pick his 51 Martin. Mama do get lie get old guitar round here.
3: And that was Bradley Laird. Don't forget, check out Grass Talk Radio, spin some Cedar Hill. Thanks, Brad, and thanks to the Chatty Light Team.
6: Now mama allow no Madeline pickin' round him. She don't allow no Madeline playin' round him. Oh Brad don't care what mama gonna say. Gotta pick back mandolin anyway. Don't want no mandolin playin' round him. fiddle playing around him. She say, Jeff, you better not play that thing around him. Now Jeff don't care what, Mama don't lie, going to sew on the fiddle with the bow anyhow. Mama don't lie, no fiddling around around him. I bring banjo play around him She don't want no banjo pick around here Why well, I don't care what mama allow Pick my banjo one time in hell allow No banjo pick around here Mama
5: Cover will do, do, do.
0: enjoyed that it's kind of long Uh, and there were some things i said that i forgot that i even talked about anyway i hope you found it interesting because you know i've i've dripped out little tiny tidbits of information about who i am and what i you know what i my story and that was by no means my whole story and uh you know but it was enough it was plenty Um, anyway i hope you enjoyed that kind of a condensed version of who the heck is this Bradley Laird guy? And uh, last thing, for the benefit of my wife, my lovely wife and family, and pets and animals who need to eat, I would suggest that if you're interested in learning to play some bluegrass, go to BradleyLaird.com and also uh, scope out all of my wonderful videos, ebooks, and courses available thereon. And, uh, you know, it'll help you learn how to pick if you want to learn how to pick. Or if you want to get a little better at your picking, just go over to BradleyLaird.com. Probably take you four or five hours to wade through it all. Um, Anyway, there's a lot of stuff up there, a lot of free stuff and some stuff that I request payment for. And I hope, you know, that doesn't offend anybody, you know, that, you know, guys got to eat. Anyway, scope it out, BradleyLaird.com. And uh, go over to Chatty Light and uh, listen to some of their other podcasts. It's just fascinating stories. You know, everybody's got a story. And I know you do, too. Anyway, y'all take care. Talk to you in the next episode.